Podcast. We're two modern mamas with the goal to inspire, empowerment, self-love, deep physical and spiritual nourishment, holistic health, and joy, no matter your journey, gender, or perspective. I'm Laura of Radical Roots. I'm a certified CrossFit trainer, certified nutrition consultant, and mama to Evie Wilder. And I'm Jess of Hold the Space Wellness. I'm a level one CrossFit trainer, a licensed and certified athletic trainer with a master's in kinesiology and mama to Baron Camille. Please note that while we're here to provide advice and insights, we aren't medical practitioners and always recommend that you check with a trusted provider before implementing any changes. Thanks for joining us. We're so happy you're here. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Modern Mamas podcast. We are so excited to have you here, and I am thrilled to have some wonderful guests on today. I actually get to chat with two incredible women for today's episode, all about a very unique topic that we've actually gotten some questions about. And I know that's relevant to my own life in a way, not necessarily my own personal story, but I have so many friends going through this or kind of in this season of life. And so um, without further ado, I would like to introduce Emma Williams and Sharon. Sharon, can you help me here? Is it Priceman? Praiseman Fisher. Praiseman. Praiseman Fisher. Got it. Okay. So Emma Williams lives in Western Maryland with her husband, two children, and two dogs. She works for, okay, Emma, now you got to help me. Jipego? Close. Yes. Close <laughs> enough. Okay. We'll call it that. Specializing um, in public health and evaluation and research. And then Sharon Praiseman Fisher is duly board certified as an adult medical and psychologist psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. She is also a wife, mother, Buddhist lay teacher, which I definitely want to touch on. That's super cool. And Chesapeake Bay sailor. Wow. She is a past. She's passionate about helping women through all stages of their life and does so through her private practice, Nurtured Well LLC in Baltimore, Maryland, which we will also talk more about. So these two wonderful women have written an inspirational book for women in their mid thirties or older who are contemplating motherhood or trying to conceive and finding that it's taking longer than they would like. Both Emma and Sharon have struggled with this issue themselves and saw a need existed for this kind of book. So they set to work creating beyond the egg timer to help other women going through similar experiences. So thank you so much, you guys for coming on. Um, I am super intrigued by this topic, especially as of late, like I mentioned, I've got friends going through this, you know, I too, I'm 31. Um, and we have one child and we know we want more, so it could end up being pertinent to my life. Cause I don't, we're not on any set timeline. So I'm, I'm just fascinated by the whole concept and also by maybe your, your own unique stories. And I love that the book includes stories from real women. Um, because every, what kills me is, and I'm sure we'll get into this too, is that every woman is so different. And I feel as though a lot of times society or medical, um, Western medicine, or even maybe Eastern medicine kind of treats women the same as a blanket kind of almost like a diagnosis um, because of their age. So we'll get into that. But before we do, I would love to ask you guys kind of like an icebreaker question. So it's January now when this is airing. So what has been each of your favorite moments from 2018? Emma, how about you go first? Oh, okay. So, I mean, publishing our book was definitely a highlight. I bet. (laughs) It was a five-year labor of love (laughs) since we both have careers and families and all that. It took us a while to finish. Five years. My goodness. Yes. That's incredible. (laughs) Um, And then my other highlight is that my husband and I found a new house to move into, um, and he has a pottery business, so we needed room to expand his pottery business so that was also like a long journey to find the right place so so 2018 was kind of like a 
where 2018 was probably the light at the end of the tunnel and now you're through that light. So that's pretty exciting. (laughs) Yes. I love it. Cool. And how about you, Sharon? So I would definitely say the birth of our book was huge. And then my other favorite highlight was the 40 plus one party we threw to celebrate my younger daughter's first birthday and my husband's 40th birthday. Oh, how fun. Uh, and that was so much fun and just such a uh, milestone, wonderful milestone to meet. Cool. Uh, I love it. Is And so you have, um, your, you said your daughter turned one? Yes. And is she your only one? No, I have a three and a half year old as well. So, okay. Yeah. And Emma, you also have two kids. So we're gonna have to dive into that a little bit. So why don't you guys tell us then um, a little bit about, let's go in, let's do this first. Why don't you each give us a little bit of your own story and then we can kind of maybe talk about how you met and your friendship. So um, I'd love to know a little bit more about your stories in regards to like how this book was inspired based on your own journeys. Cause that's something that you do kind of mention in the, in the uh, intro to the book in terms of how you saw a need for this kind of a book because of your own journey. So I'd love to dive into that a little bit just to kind of kick us off and let our listeners learn a little bit more about you. Yeah, so the book, the idea was really conceived on Emma's 40th birthday. We were out having this amazing Italian dinner. And I, at this point, had, I was probably a year, year and a half into trying to conceive uh, my first child. And at the time, I think I was 35, maybe I, I, we started when I was like 34. So I wasn't much older than 35 if that. And one of the things that frustrated me the most is people would, first of all, think it was strange that I hadn't gotten pregnant right away. And second of all, initially leap to my age being the issue. And that seemed really incongruent with everything around me because in our, our circle of friends, pretty much everybody was over 35 when they had their kids for whatever reason. And I was the only one that was really having any trouble. My husband and I were the only ones who were having any trouble. And more so to the point was that we had gotten a fertility evaluation by a reproductive endocrinologist uh, who said our age was perfectly fine, that all of our my husband's tests and my tests came back perfectly fine, and that there really shouldn't at that point be an issue with trying to conceive. Um, so Emma had this brilliant idea of, she, she, you know, she actually said, wouldn't it be such a great idea if we had, if there was a book out there to just help women and support women and to clarify information and to off, also offer accurate information because we've been sold this idea of a fertility cliff for women at age 35, but the scientific research just doesn't support that. Um, certainly there's a decline in, in fertility as we go through our 30s, and nobody argues that, but it's not some big, huge cliff that you're just never going to be able to climb back up from. And so the next day, I literally, I went, I, next day I called her and said, we, we, we need to write this book. And the motivation for me was, I was very cathartic to write and to help other people. And I just wanted, I wanted to make something positive out of my experience. I love that. I think that's incredible taking a journey like that one and turning, kind of spinning it and just making it positive and helping other women find empowerment and support and solidarity through that. I think it's incredible because I really think that motherhood and the journey into motherhood can be incredibly isolating. Um, so creating a resource like this, and I love that you guys did it together. You know, you found solidarity with each other and then you want to take that energy and empowerment and share it with the world. I think, I think that's just incredible. Thank you. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. So how did you guys meet then? Let's go, let's go there. 
So we are both knitters, and our um, mutual friend organized a knitting group. And um, her name's Hannah, and she's actually in the book, too, a little bit. Um, So, yeah, we just got to know each other through knitting, which is such a great way to make friends. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) And did either of you – so um, how old were you each when you had your first child? So I was 35 when I had my first child, okay. and it was funny. I um, <laughs> when I first met Sharon, I was pregnant with my first child, but I had had a miscarriage before. So even though I was like 20 weeks and totally showing, <laughs> I didn't like tell her or any of the other women I just met because I was still kind of in this fearful state of like, oh, something's going to go wrong, yeah. and like I want as few people to know as possible. Sharon, you remember that, right? So that I, was- I do. I remember just like, just, and it was so funny because you can't see us, Laura, but a- Emma is very tall and very thin. Mm-hmm. So it was like very obvious when she was pregnant. <laughs> it was just like, you know, it was just like she had this like pot belly. Right. Uh, and I'm like, okay. And, and you know, I, I never, I learned the hard way. You never ask somebody when they're due unless if like they're crowning basically. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I didn't say anything at all. And then she finally did say something, I think, around week 30 or something. I don't know. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. How was, funny. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's, those are treacherous waters. Not treacherous, but definitely sensitive um, in terms of, you know, just pr- pregnancy. And one thing that I've learned so much through going through this journey myself is that it really, you you know, even if someone is, even just the question, how are you doing sometimes can be hard for a woman who's like maybe really, really near due date and just so ready and sick of hearing that question because she knows that really what people are referring to is just when, like, when's the baby coming, you know? And it's, it's, um, it's a fascinating thing of just getting a read on people and even just saying congratulations even upon a pregnancy. Cause you never really know like what the story was before, where the emotions are now. It's such a huge life shift. So I can appreciate Emma that you were kind of, you know, waiting till it felt right to share. And then Sharon, that you were super respectful of that, even though you knew full well that <laughs> she was pregnant. That's incredible. It's a, that's a good start to a friendship. I think there's a lot of respect there, um, which is yeah. wonderful. <laughs> and then Sharon, you had already had one at that point or were you? W- no. Still, so still? I had, um, I wasn't even married at that point. Okay. See, so it's really interesting. Emma and I, Emma was married when I met her, but we've, I've saw her through both her kids. I saw her through some career changes, a big move. And I was still single. I think when I met her, so she saw me through my marriage and through conceiving both my kids. I had my first child at 38. Okay. Um, after three years of trying to conceive. Wow. Okay. And your second, how, how much later? I was, I was 40 when I had my second after about mm, not even trying, I would say three or four months of unprotected sex. Okay. Your body's like, all right, I've done it once. Let's do it again. <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. It's amazing. And, and yeah. And that's another, you know, one of the stigmas we hope, um, or one of the misconceptions we hope to correct is that really, as long as you have all of the equipment, and it's still functioning, there's a mm-hmm. chance of getting pregnant. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think all too often people are sold on this idea of they get a diagnosis of PCOS or endometriosis when they're younger, and they're told you'll never be able to conceive naturally. Mm-hmm. And then they're like stunned when they conceive naturally, and it may not always be the most welcome surprise. Um, mm-hmm. And that's certainly not to say that they shouldn't follow prudent medical advice that it might be harder for them and to seek more help sooner. I'm, I'm not saying they shouldn't do that. But really, if you, if you have all the parts, you can get pregnant. Yeah, so. totally. And I find that telling a woman that she'll never be able to have a baby 
first off, I think is irresponsible. <laughs> and it's because it's just, it's not necessarily true. There's so many things outside of just Western medicine that we can do to, you know, improve our health and increase potential fertility and, and all of that. So that's one thing that kind of gets under my skin um, because we have, I think it takes a lot of the power away from the woman. And I, and I find that um, with friends who've conceived later, who've tried to conceive later and, you know, been successful is that they have to overcome this obstacle of, people telling, not even just practitioners or doctors, but like people just kind of telling them that, oh, it's probably not going to happen or it's going to be way harder for you. Or once they do conceive, like they're high risk or they're geriatric or what advanced maternal age or whatever. And though I I think that one thing that people don't understand sometimes is the power of, of words and what, when you tell someone something that, you know, uh, emotions and feelings and energies can be manifested through, through what we say. And so I love that you guys have written this book to kind of try and make a shift there and empower women versus make them feel incapable or super old or like their bodies. It just it, it's building a sort of body trust that can so easily be taken away through the power of of what we say, which I, I think is incredible. So thank you. <laughs> sure. Yes, and I love it. I love that term, body trust. I absolutely. Ah, uh, yeah. And uh, and I can say I'm probably jumping ahead, but the the delivery of my first daughter and really to some extent my second daughter too is really when I earn that back um Beautiful. for myself you know I really yeah well anyway I'm sorry I didn't want to derail so no this is great this is how this podcast runs our listeners know we just roll <laughs> so um there's no necessarily rhyme or reason or specific uh you know protocol we have to follow but I would actually why don't we do that now so we talked a little bit about um Emma you were first you conceived first and had your babies and Sharon you were there for her and then Sharon you came your your story kind of went from there so you got married and, and conceived so your first pregnancy took a little bit longer correct that's what you said yes the first pre- pregnancy took three years and okay. we used pretty much name name an eastern medicine intervention name a western medicine intervention other than IVF and we did it um okay. Yeah. So when we started with Terry Welshler's Taking Charge of Your Fertility, Mm -hmm. Emma had told me about that book right when I I got married at 33. My husband wanted to wait six months, uh, which seemed totally reasonable. So we waited. And then once I was ready, Emma gave me that book. And so we we did the fertility awareness method and I was tracking my cycles and um, I realized I didn't ovulate with any level of regularity. Mm -hmm. So I started doing acupuncture, which got me ovulating correctly. I changed my diet based on Chinese medicine principles. Um, I later changed my diet again based on the work by Alyssa Vitti in um, Woman Code. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, we went for the fertility evaluation, and all my tests came back normal. My husband's tests came back normal, but they found a giant polyp in my uterus and some fibroids. And so they were all benign and everything, but the, the doctor felt that was the obstacle. Um, so I had, I had that removed. Um, and then she sent us home to keep trying and, you know, and had offered, you know, if you want to do IUIs, if you want to do medicine, you can, but again, like you seem perfectly healthy. And if you don't want to do that, that that's cool too. Um, and so then after some time we went back and I started taking Clomid and we did some IUIs, um, and then Clomid didn't work for me. I did Femora and I did trigger shots, um, and then finally, after all of, and I had another surgery, an exploratory lap to make sure I didn't have endometriosis, um, and then finally got pregnant. Wow. <laughs> and so, yeah. And so then after all of this like highly medicalized route of getting pregnant, I was like, I want the least number of interventions for the pregnancy and birth. Um, so I found a group of really great midwives 
And I wanted a hospital birth. That was where I felt most comfortable. So they they were out of a hospital, and they were as low intervention as you get. Um, I had um, no interventions during my labor. Um, the midwife came in kind of at the end. She had had a hard night. I was like her third woman, I think, that night. And, oh, gosh. Um, and she's like, I'm just going to drink some tea while, while you're doing your thing. And um, she she was, James Taylor was playing. She was sipping tea and my little Mallory was born. Oh, um, beautiful. So it was really incredibly beautiful birth. Yeah, um, that's incredible. Probably just so empowering. You, you felt, I, I imagine, I can't speak for you, obviously, yes. in, in that moment, just like the power of your body. And like you mentioned, that was like kind of the catalyst for body trust. Yes, yes. It's incredible. And then baby number two, how long later? So my, so it's funny. I always saw myself having two or three kids. My husband was like not, he was like into one. And so he, he actually convinced me one was a good idea. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And then he was like, I was like, I don't know. I, I really do think I want a second. He's like, I want a second too. Cause they're so much fun. And, um, and he took to parenting right away. It was, it was like literally right away. He took to being a father. It was just amazing to watch. So we knew we couldn't handle back to back babies. So when Mallory was about 18 months old, I had my Mirena taken out. So I had the Mirena put in, which is the IUD, um, because I did, you know, we were always unexplained infertility. And if you have the parts, you can get pregnant. And, mm -hmm. and like I said, I didn't, we, we didn't want the back-to-back -back babies. So I had that in. And then at eight, when she was 18 months old, I had it taken out. Um, and then I was still, was I still nursing her? I can't remember. Anyway, we didn't do at that point, we're just like, whatever happens, happens. Mm -hmm. Um, so we didn't do the time dinner course. We didn't do anything special. We just enjoyed ourselves. Um, and I got pregnant. What did I say? Three or four months later, maybe six. It's, it all runs together. That's, that's right. the thing perspective, right? Like when I was in it, I could tell you every single minute of every single thing. Now that I'm past it, I'm like, I don't know. It was, it was, but anyway, she was born about, uh, about two years after Mallory was born. So they're two years apart. Oh, gosh. Awesome. Okay. Um, so that pregnancy was, was pretty well, um, went pretty well. Um, and I, I had moved, so I couldn't go back to that hospital, but I found a group of OBs that were just so supportive and woman centric and were like, yeah, sure. You can have, you know, you don't need, you know, we did the basic level of interventions, um, I went past my due date, which really surprised me, and they wanted to induce uh, because ACOG had come out with this new recommendation that you should deliver by 40 weeks at age 40 due to placental decline. But I was talking to them about it, and they're like, well, we can go to 41 weeks because, you, you know, you're so healthy, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're like, you're, you're one of the OBs had actually said, she's like, you're as healthy as some of my 28-year-old patients. Look so, at that. She looked at you and saw you and heard you and saw that you were an individual. I think that is so incredible. <laughs> I know. It, well, and that's how I was. I know. Exactly. Exactly. And it's so sad that we feel like, wow, that's how it went. You know, because it should always be that way, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it shouldn't be... The anomaly, but they did. They really saw me as who I was—a very fit, active, healthy person who really wanted that natural um, experience. So, at 41 weeks, they did want to induce, and at that point, quite frankly, I was ready. I had yeah, blown I out my hip joint, and I just was like barely walking up, and I was huge too. I mean, I like looking at pictures; I was pretty ridiculous. Um, so I was like, you know what? That's cool. And I had a lot of anxiety too around 
who was going to take care of our older daughter, even though, I mean, in retrospect, we had like plan A, B, C, and D. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of ridiculous that I was so worried about it. Hey, but it's anyways, all justified in the moment. I mean, <laughs> in the mo- yeah, in the moment, it's, it's where I was. And so yeah. we scheduled the induction and that was fine. And I did not want an epidural. Um, and they were totally supportive of that, which again was really great. They're like, yeah, you already did this naturally. You'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And so we go in and it was a little bit odd because it was so like, you know, we're going in for, for our baby. Like, I don't, it was so scheduled, right? Yes. Um, and then like, so they hook you up and when you're induced, you have to be on a 24, uh, con- or at least I had to be on a continuous monitor. I don't know the rules for everybody, but they had to have this monitor going continuously. So I was basically sort of, I had a, a t- I was tethered. I could get out of the bed if I wanted, but I was tethered. So I couldn't just like roam around. And the nurse was like, you know, I, Right now, it takes a while for the Pitocin to work. There's really no point in you doing anything special right now because I was asking her if I should be squatting or just doing any kind of movements or anything to help the baby. And she's like, you know, give it a give it a couple hours to like warm up, right? Yeah, rest up. And so, yeah. So I'm like, so then I'm like just sitting there. It was very strange because my husband and I were like, oh, what do we do? And you know, I should say we had done hypnobirthing for the first baby, which worked beautifully. So he read me some scripts and like we did some of the, some of the getting the relaxation and everything and, um, things are still moving along and I really wasn't feeling uncomfortable at all or anything. In fact, I actually asked her to turn the Pitocin up a little bit cause I'm like, let's get rolling on this. I want to meet my baby. Um, and so then all of a sudden, like a couple hours in, uh, my membranes released like all at once, like all the fluid at once came out. Um, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating. It was like, a lot. And <laughs> that I think super, super intense. And I wanted to, at that point, I think I had been sitting on the yoga ball just for something to do. And, um, I got back into the bed cause I thought I'd be more comfortable there. And a midwife came in and was like, can I check you? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Whatever. That sounds good. And I just remember her saying, you're at eight centimeters. I have the cord. We'll go to OR2. And from that moment on, everything was like an out-of-body experience. Mm -hmm. They literally, the room filled with people. I couldn't make sense of anything. They literally ran me down the hallway, literally ran um, with the midwife was on the the bed, on the gurney with with me, with her hands still inside. And an anesthesiologist um, was saying I had to take some deep breaths because now I didn't have the epidural and they had to do general anesthesia. And I, I remember there's always com- tragedy plus time equals comedy because at that point I am a practicing Buddhist and I was praying to Buddha Tara, mm-hmm. uh, who's the Buddha of swift action. So if you're in trouble and you need somebody real quick and you need blessings real quick to help, you pray to Buddha Tara. And I remember actually thinking like, well, I can't do that right now because I'm praying. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I can either say my mantras or I can take deep breaths, but I can't do both. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go for the prayer. Um, and apparently I'm like a really cheap date because they had me knocked out right away. Oh and I had a, well, I imagine I had a, prayer and breath are similar in that they're both. I'm sure the purpose of the him telling you to breathe is to to calm. <laughs> probably, yeah, yeah. I think I think so. I have I honestly have no idea. Mm-hmm. I just know. I woke up and I, 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 nothing really made sense. And then I saw my husband holding the baby mm. and he told me later what happened. And they literally, they did the C-section in 45 seconds, which includes oh intubating me and running the anesthesia, which I mean, it's like, it blows my mind because I spend more than that time brushing my teeth. Like oh. it takes me longer than 45 seconds to brush my teeth. Oh. So like, 
the fact that they did that was, and it saved her life. Um, because what happened was her cord was what they call prolapsed Mm -hmm. and it was sitting underneath her, Mm -hmm. um, which they said it happens in less than 1% of pregnancies. I've had to tow chills right now. (laughs) I'm like on the verge of tears. That's so, that's so incredible. Yeah. We're very, very fortunate. Um, had my, had my membranes released at home and this is why I really believe in just in things really karmic interventions had my membranes released at home they they, they don't think she would have lived they said it's very rare that they live if if they're not if you're not in the hospital being monitored Mm. when it yeah and western medicine and hospitals and all of that um i love it i find it fascinating and very cool you know you somehow on some level wanted a hospital birth and and you know, and then it's like the, everything kind of came full circle and with the induction and I, I don't know, it's, it's amazing. I, I I'm right there with you in terms of like the energy of, of, and the universe kind of taking care of us when we put the, that energy out and kind of, um, are open to it. And now you have two beautiful, two beautiful baby girls. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Wow. It's amazing. That story before and I'm like, Oh, <laughs> oh my God. seriously on the verge of tears over here. It's crazy. I think because like we are now in the process of talking about number two and like going through this oh. all again. And so seeing my friends like about to give birth and seeing, hearing stories like that. Um, whereas months ago when I, it wasn't really on my radar, I would have been like, okay, that's, that's an incredible, powerful story. But now like it just hits home in a place where it's, it's hard to um, explain. So <laughs> thanks for sharing. That's an, that's amazing. Um, and do you have anything else to share about your experience and your story and, and, uh, that part of your motherhood journey? Yeah, no, just just really about how amazing our body trust, right? Yep. Like mm-hmm. my body grew these two beautiful girls and they births were as different as different could be. And what I have to say too, when um, Josette came out, she was like nine and a half pounds, which they did not expect her to be that big. Um, but also she was, you know, part of my wanting to avoid all of these interventions was I didn't want anything affecting her. Well, she had like the most drugs possible affecting her, right? Like mm-hmm. that, that's why they do the C-section so quickly under those circumstances is it's not only to get her out because the cord is being compressed and they don't get air, but also because they don't want them being exposed to general anesthesia. It's very dangerous for mm-hmm. them. And she was the most alert baby in the nursery. She mm-hmm. was like, it was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, body trust, you know, my body was able to bring these, grow these two amazing girls, bring them into the world, obviously with a lot of help second time around, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that our bodies can do it. It's amazing. Amazing. And how was the postpartum experience for you? Um, did it differ having the, the first birth was unmedicated? Yeah. So it was interesting. It actually, and that was like another fear. I think the, the C-section was definitely the first week was horrible after the C-section, but after that it was like easy breezy. Um, and with the vaginal birth, it was almost sort of the opposite. Like I felt great right after I had her, but I had a lot of, um, pelvic, floor issues that were very painful and just dysfunction and needed physical therapy. And I didn't have any of that the second time. So I definitely also changed my mind about, you know, I had all this fear around, I mean, it is open abdominal surgery. Let's not minimalize that. Um, but it, it definitely wasn't that difficult to recover. And, you know, part of it is too, I had two kids to take care of. So right, I didn't really, again, you know. body trust, like you just have yeah. to trust that your body will heal because you don't really have a choice. You've got to be a mom. And I, and right. I so appreciate you telling your stories because one of the things that I would like to just kind of emphasize more on this podcast or talk about, at least open the dialogue is the importance of that postpartum period, potentially 
and hopefully I don't get much backlash for this, but potentially most likely more than the labor and delivery itself. I think that our society focuses so much and even your book is a testament to this, like on the, the, um, conception and especially then labor and delivery, like it's got to go some quote unquote perfect way. You're going to have a birth plan and all that stuff. And I think it, while it's so important to prepare our minds and bodies and souls and hearts for that experience, once that baby is earthside, you are a mom. I mean, you're a mom ahead of time, but now you have this baby, this, this little tiny helpless human that needs your love and you need to be able to take care of yourself and trust your body and trust your spirit and your soul to love on yourself and that human. And I, I think that at this specific moment in society, uh, women are a little bit underserved in what comes next. And so I love that you've written this book too, to help support women in this, especially at this age to feel empowered and to trust their bodies and to know they're not alone so that once this baby comes, however this baby comes, it's all natural. It's all beautiful. It's all magical. Then we have a baby. And now you've already kind of felt empowerment through solidarity and through trusting your body to then come into motherhood capable instead of feeling like you're less than or broken or sick or in some way less capable because of a number that really means so little. So uh, I just think it's really, really powerful. Yeah, I could not agree more with what you're saying about the postpartum period. I feel like there was so much focus on the birth, mm-hmm. um, which is such a small part of mm-hmm. becoming a mother compared to the postpartum and just like all the issues with breastfeeding. And um, yeah, I mean, there's just so much to know about the postpartum period. And yeah. I feel like people don't. Uh, but And then also I feel like um, there's we unfortunately can sometimes like scare women too much in this culture about like oh you're not going to get any sleep Mm -hmm. oh it's so awful all the projecting (laughs) yeah yeah. it's tough so but that's that's why we have this podcast ultimately is to you know show that we're all capable and and we can find it's going to be hard like I'm not trying to um you know ignore that fact but we can do it together we can support each other and I think that's just the most incredible part and so I'm grateful that you shared your story because even just sharing that story is so powerful and someone hearing it and feeling inspired by it and maybe having gone through something similar and knowing that they're not alone there's the power in that is pretty incredible um so I'm grateful Emma do you want to share a little bit about your experience was it similar different I'm sure it was incredible and magical in its own way as well Um, so, so as I said, you know, the first pregnancy, I was quite hesitant until pretty far along because I thought I was going to have another miscarriage. Um, even to the point where I like rented this, um, fetal heart monitor that at home and I would check our heartbeat at home. Um, that's what it's called. It's called a Doppler, right? So anyway, and then the other thing I was thinking about when Sharon was telling her story is that my work involves, um, maternal and newborn health in like low and middle income countries. So I would spend all day at work reading basically about all the things that can go wrong for mothers and newborns. Like, and it was, I didn't realize it at the time, but it it was like not a great thing to be reading about while I was pregnant for the first time, you know, about neonatal asphyxia and all of this stuff. So um, I think I went into it fairly anxious, um, uh, which was, was not great, but, um, I also was very determined to have a natural childbirth, um, and had, um, a home birth midwife. And so the first birth was, um, it was long, but it was good in the end. (laughs) It was like 36 hours. Um, 
of like sort of very slow progress. Uh, and I remember my husband at one point saying like, what, what are we doing? What have we gotten ourselves into, you know? So, um, so that was pretty funny. But then, and then, um, after she was born, um, she ended up being in the hospital for a few days. So kind of like Sharon was saying, like, I didn't want, I wanted to have this natural birth Mm -hmm. and, um, didn't want her to have any interventions, but then because she had jaundice basically that wasn't resolving quickly, she ended up being in the hospital anyway and having all these interventions. And unfortunately I felt very, um, like stigmatized by the hospital staff because I had had a home birth. They kind of made me feel like I'd brought it on or I, I don't know to what extent like they made me feel that way or I was just kind of bringing that on myself, like sort of blaming myself for what had happened. So, um, but you know, I, I didn't understand really about neonatal jaundice and how common it, common it is. I was going to say it's so common. I know. And then of course, afterwards I found out so many other, you know, people who had been through that. Um, you know, I think no matter what, like if at any, at any, in any way you felt stigmatized by, or, you know, like the, like the staff was not, was making you feel a certain way. Like they should, I, in my opinion, ideally they'd be going above and beyond to make you feel like it was not your fault. So I'm sorry that you didn't get that kind of support or feedback. Um, and it's amazing. You know, I think hospital birth sometimes is put in this like blanket statement. It's either like bad or it's good or whatever. And and ultimately just like any practitioner, any experience, there's going to be great. There's going to be hard. There's going to be good, bad, et cetera. So, um, yeah, just that that's, that's must've been pretty tough. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. And the other thing was because I hadn't been a patient in the hospital, it was like I was sleeping on this pullout chair. Like no one was taking Ugh. care of me, but I and you had just had a first. baby. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. And so it was very, in retrospect, very strange. Of course, my mom was there helping out, and my husband and stuff like that. But in terms of the like healthcare providers, they were all like focused on the baby. Mm-hmm. Um. So anyway, so that was kind of a a mixed experience. Um. But then, and then. Much like Sharon, the second baby, the second pregnancy happened really quickly. And then that one was just kind of a dream. I mean, I don't know. I was just so much more relaxed the second time around and um, just had this feeling that everything was going to be okay. And the birth was like really quick. Um, I had the home birth. I wanted to have a home birth again. And um, it was um, it was so quick that what happened was I was in labor and then, um, sorry, I'm terrible. I'm not very good at telling stories compared to Sharon, but anyway, um, basically I went, the midwife was attending another birth at the hospital and I couldn't tell if I was really, really, really in active labor. Um, because the first time around it had taken so long. So I went to see the midwife at the hospital and, um, you know, she's, she thought that I had a pretty, pretty long time to go. And so she was like, you know, just go home. And then she was going to attend this delivery that she was doing and then come to my house and deliver my baby. But just as a precaution, she sent the midwife, uh, her assistant to come to my house and help out. And so basically it, things ended up happening really fast <laughs> so that only the midwife's assistant was there. Wow. But it was like, it was like such a quick and easy birth that, um, again, it made me think of my work in like Asia and Africa. There are so many women who deliver at home without anyone there to help. And you think, how do they survive that? But it was like the baby just like shot out of me quick and easy. Nice. <laughs> so um, 
Yeah, so I was like, oh, I could see how lots of women can just deliver a baby, like, with just their family to help or whatever. And my, you know, the midwife's assistant was like, yeah, your husband could have delivered that baby, but, you know, that would have been his worst nightmare. So we were glad the assistant was there. To yeah, help I bet. Yeah. That's so funny. I never knew that about her birth. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm not telling it very coherently, but it was so funny because I was sort of like, in denial that it was really happening and then I don't know and then um yeah and then all of a sudden bam out she came and there she was maybe it was like the yeah. not thinking about it too much you know allowed that that space for her just to be like all right here I come yeah and then again she had my second daughter had jaundice too but like the way the pediatrician tr- pediatrician handled it was like so much more chill and like I knew what was going on and had you know experienced breastfeeding a newborn before so I just was able to just nurse her more often and she never had to go to the hospital or anything so that was good that's awesome and uh, having had midwife midwifery care did you feel like your age was a um a conversation frequently was it something that was brought up was it a concern or was it more just they kind of treated you as an individual yeah no they never she never mentioned it I don't think or really did anything special because of my age um yeah she was definitely and she was definitely very like kind of willing to like work with whatever my you know intuition or preference was or anything like that that's amazing yeah I'm so grateful that you guys shared your stories that for me that's one of my favorite parts of this podcast is hearing people's birth stories or just like the stories of how people kind of came to where they are now and, and all of it. So I'm grateful that you guys were open and sharing. And um, I would love to now dive a little bit more into this book. So we touched on it earlier, but what if, if you were to kind of sum it up, what was the real catalyst for writing this book together? I think really our own experience is becoming mm-hmm. mothers over 35 and seeing what was in the media did not match mm-hmm. our experiences or our friends' experiences at any level. Um, the, the, what the media portrayed did not match the reason why women that we knew and ourselves were becoming mothers over 35. Um, the experiences getting pregnant during the pregnancy or birth did not match and and we just wanted we wanted a validation and, and to, to, for all of the other women going through it. Awesome, I love it. I think that's that's a pretty incredible incentive. Um, so I like the way that you broke you broken the book down. So the, and the it's broken into three sections. Section one is indecision. And so can you kind of just maybe give us a brief overview of what what that section is about and why you believed it to be important um, as it is in order to kind of share this experience with other moms to be or women considering becoming moms or already moms? So, yeah. So I guess to walk that back just a little bit, how we started doing this project is we started, it's really a qualitative study. We started interviewing women that we knew who had their children over 35 and they started recommending other women who wanted to be interviewed. And at a certain point it it became saturated. You know, the stories just repeated themselves. So then what we did is we looked at the narratives and we pulled out the common themes and we discovered that the three themes as to why women, these women were having their kids over 35 were either indecision about having children, infertility, so people like in my situation who started younger but just ended up being older because they were having so much trouble getting pregnant, and just in due time, just how life works out. And so, and so the indecision 
um, we highlight three women who just for various reasons had different feelings about motherhood and about whether or not they would want that. Mm -hmm. And in, in our book, ultimately all decide they want to be mothers and become mothers. Of course, we have total respect for people who don't want to be parents, but right. Yeah. I think that's incredible because I, I feel as though, and what, what, from what I've heard, sometimes I think media portrays it as one day you're going to be like, oh, my clock is ticking. And all of a sudden I'm like overwhelmed with this desperate need to become a mom. And that's not always the case. And so I think in some cases women wait for that moment and maybe that they don't have that specific unique moment because, you know, we have lives and, and having a baby is, I guess I, I want to say a sacrifice in many ways, but it's life, it's life altering. And so to have some indecision is very, it's not just normal, but it's also very common. And um, so I love that you've highlighted that as well. Yeah, one of the things that we delve into is just how more aware we are in the world than I think other generations have been. Mm -hmm. And so like, for some of the women, it really was just being very, um, for all of the women we interviewed, they were all very conscious about it was a very conscious choice to be a parent. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't to be taken lightly. Um, even the women who always wanted to be parents took it very seriously. Mm -hmm. And the world is very complicated. You know, when, when you when you look at having to delve out 30% of your salary for <laughs> daycare, when you look at global warming, when you look at, I mean, we, we do it, we present it sort of in a comical way because the women we interviewed were very funny women as well. But these are really things to think about when bringing a child into the world. And we also, you know, I think are starting to see people who can be more self-actualized at a younger age and just knowing like, is this what I want or is this what I'm supposed to do? You know, you're supposed to go get, go to college, get a job, get married, have kids. Mm -hmm. And people in general, men and women just feeling more empowered to say, well, maybe I don't want that for myself, mm -hmm. or maybe our world isn't really set up for it. And like to touch on what you had said earlier about the postpartum period and women being underserved. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to be a parent in the United States right now. There's very little support at any step of the game. A hundred percent. And, and I, there's so much that, that can be done to prepare, you know, financially, um, in a relationship, having that time to really connect and, and figure out marriage or partnership in some capacity or d making a decision to maybe do it alone. Um, and then also, you know, mindset work I spent, I did like three years of therapy before I became a mom and that was a conscious decision for me as well. I wanted to, to do that and to get to know myself better and to learn to kind of love myself in a way that I knew I would need to, in order to be a parent, um, and so I love that you've touched on that because I do agree. And I see that amongst my friends as well as just making parenthood and um, a very intense, making it a very intentional decision. And so um, I think that that is incredible that you've touched on that and shared that and created a resource for people to feel, again, not feel alone in the decision to wait longer. <laughs> awesome. Okay. And then the next section is infertility. And so I'd love it if you guys could just kind of touch on that and why you decided to include that in the book. Well, infertility should really be in quotations or something like that. Cause the main thing we talk about is it's, it's a very small proportion of people who are truly unable to conceive. Um, but Sharon can lay out all the statistics about how um, it's, it's something like in two years, 98% of couples will be able to conceive right Sharon, or something it's, it's um it's it's a little bit lower it's about 90 or 95 percent um but that's still like really good odds <laughs> yes 
but that's for two years. But a that's lot of two people, years. Yes. Yeah, they want it to happen much faster. Um, and again, I feel like sometimes there's a reason for that for it taking a little longer. I didn't have a period for seven years, and so and oh, now wow. I look back and I'm grateful because I don't know if we would have had a baby sooner or not. Probably not. Still, but like having that time to kind of heal my body and figure out what's going on and all of that, I'm so grateful for because it again forced me in a way to tune into myself and my needs and my headspace and my body and my mind and all that. So um, I, I think that's also fascinating that people probably think the longer they wait, the longer it'll take, but not, not necessarily. Sometimes it's just that it takes a little while because you're, for whatever reason, you your body's just waiting for the right time potentially or whatever the case may be. But I'm glad that you yeah. included that kind of to, again, do away with some of the, uh, the stigma or the misconceptions around fertility and age. Yeah, and we talk in the book, we've interviewed both women who were able to heal naturally and improve their fertility naturally and other women who went with like IVF or other interventions. So mm-hmm. it's really, I think both can work. Um, and it's, you know, we don't choose sides on um, either approach. That's awesome. And then finally, we have the, the third section is in due time. Can you uh, share a little about what that what that alludes to? So, so that was the women we highlight, it it comes down to just how their life worked out. Um, So one woman, for example, was married in her twenties and the marriage broke up for several reasons. And one was that she ultimately decided she wanted to have kids and her first husband didn't. Um, So then she gets remarried and then it's, you know, just by the time she got remarried, she was a little bit older. Right. Um, and then I think uh, I'm trying to remember, but there's all sorts of reasons why sometimes life just works out that way. You, you don't want to go it alone and you find your partner later on. Um, you're caring for a sick parent. Um, financially, it's just not feasible. Um, Sometimes people's, you know, one of the things we wanted to counter too is that women who delayed childbearing were just career crazy. I, I feel like that in itself is a bit shaming. Um, I personally, you know, feel that people should do the careers that make the most sense to them and that call to them and they feel the most comfortable in. And some people's careers take very little training, you know, like a hairdresser, it only takes like a year out of high school. If you want to be a surgeon, you're looking at at least 10 years, right? Um, And not everybody can handle parenthood while they're in their training and their education. And so sometimes, you know, we're not um, implying that it's going to be easy the order you are and you should just wait. But I think that if you're the kind of person that really doesn't want to be like lactating while you're writing your dissertation, you know, that's, that's okay. That's okay. And that speaks to how much you actually value wanting to be a mom and doing it in the way that you feel that you can do it. So that would be another example of in in due time. I like that. And some, I feel like, again, like you mentioned, sometimes women can feel judged because like, oh, you, you put career first, but it's not necessarily a first or second thing. It's just a timing thing. And it's not a matter of prioritizing a work ahead of motherhood or vice versa. It's just, that's the way that, that the timeline works best for that unique individual. And we need to stop passing judgment on women, period, let alone for something, such a huge monumental decision. Right. And we certainly have never passed this judgment on men. Oh, a hundred percent. It's absurd. Oh, that's a, we could write. We could do a whole podcast on that. 
Awesome. Well, um, I'm so grateful you guys came on and I, and I wonder if you guys have any, you know, final thoughts, um, any, any additional things you want to share about the book? Um, and then we can kind of get into where people can find you and the like. So any, any final thoughts, words you'd like to leave with in regards to the book or your own experiences or, you know, any of it really. Hi friends, Laura here with some exciting news. Four Sigmatic has come on as a Modern Mamas podcast sponsor. We are so excited. If you've been following along with my Instagram stories, especially you've seen that I use this stuff every single morning. The Lion's Mane Elixir is my absolute favorite. I add it to my boosted coffee for an extra boost of brain clarity, productivity, and focus that I genuinely did not experience until I started adding this in every day. They also make other elixirs like Rishi for calming, Cordyceps for an energy boost, and Chaga for an immune boost. Along with those elixirs, they also have really cool blends. I love the Lion's Mane and Coffee blend when I travel because I don't have to worry about getting my hands and lips on high quality coffee. I have it ready to go. All you need is hot water, you mix in the blend and you're set. They have caffeine, caffeine free options as well, like a chai latte and a turmeric latte for gut health and skin glow and all, they have all kinds of incredible blends. I cannot recommend enough that you go check out their website, find whatever mushroom blend is, is going to fit with your lifestyle and give it a try. The awesome folks at Four Sigmatic have offered our listeners, you guys are special, you get 15% off any order. If you go to foursigmatic.com forward slash modern mamas or simply type in modern mamas, all lowercase, all one word at checkout, you get 15% off. Check it out, see what fits your life, and happy shrooming. Well, we're collecting more stories for our website now. So oh, if fun. listeners are, yeah, if listeners have stories they want to share with us, they could um, contact us through our website or Facebook or um, know, anything. What is the website again? Just uh, We can say it aloud and then I will also link to it in the show notes. Um, beyondtheegtimer.com. Okay, that's what I thought. Beautiful. Beyondtheegtimer.com. And that's also the name of the book, Beyond the Egg Timer. Um, and if you guys have more stories to share, how fun. I love, I am a huge, when I was pregnant, I listened to birth stories like on like 24, not 24 seven, but anytime I had a moment, I would go for long walks and put on podcasts or birth stories. And I just found it to be incredibly, I think some people can get overwhelmed by it. But for me, I found solidarity in that. I loved hearing all the different kinds of stories and just like kind of opening my mind to all the beautiful ways that babies enter this world. Um, and I think that it's really incredible that you found so many women to share their experiences of motherhood transition in a, this specific age demographic where um, they are in a way kind of like marginalized and treated differently and judged differently. And so um, I'm just so grateful that you put this out into the world. And so where can, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, so, I'm sorry. I, wanted to, I just wanted to say too, like essentially, um, yeah, definitely. We're trying to build this community of women 35 and older who are having babies. So they can go to our website, beyondtheegtimer.com. They can order our book through the website or through Amazon or Kindle. Um, and the book is really, it's very unique. Emma and I, in our journeys of uh, trying to conceive, have probably read every book out there because um, we're, we're just like that. And what and they're great books out there. But what makes our book very unique is that it really is support. We do not tout one specific way of getting pregnant. We do not show just one person's story. Uh, we 
clarify statistics, and we offer a lot of coping skills. So in each section, which you mentioned, we have three narratives, plus we also include our own stories throughout the book. And we take out the themes from each narrative and pair it with coping skills and with predicate, which is a term we coined to deal with all the sticky situations um, when trying to conceive and being pregnant. Like, you know, for example, you get pregnant, how do you tell your best friend that, you've, that you're that you pregnant when she's been trying for just as long, that kind of thing? Um, or do you have to go to a baby shower if you've been trying for like three years and just had a failed IVF, right? Um, so we offer that. And um, we're also trying to, and that's at beyondtheegtimer.com. We also have a Facebook page um, that's open to anybody. And I post all sorts of great articles on there. And then we also have a closed Facebook group, which is private, for women who are trying to conceive or have kids. And then you can just, you know, share whatever you want there. And like, yeah, and like Emma said, we are collecting more narratives to put on our blog. Awesome. And I will link to all of those in the show notes as well, the Facebook page and the group. So people just request they want to join the the group and then you guys kind of um, moderate that who's in and who's not. I imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's um, really, I mean, you only just have to be a woman trying to have a baby over 35 or have had a baby over 35. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. We want to be inclusive. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Okay. And then where can people find you guys? Um, So, yeah. So, beyondtheegtimer.com. Our Instagram is at, um, oh, Twitter. Uh, Emma, do you know our Twitter handle? It's (laughs) also Beyond the Egg Timer. Okay. And okay. do you have an Instagram? I do. Um, it's at it's nurtured. Uh, uh, the the little line that's like a, it's not a dash. It's like an under. What's that kind of line called? An under line. Underscore. Yeah. Underscore. So it's nurtured underscore well underscored LLC. And okay. I do a lot of um, the on the egg timer stuff on that as well. Um, and then you are also um, seeing clients locally, right? So what is can you share us how people can find you if they want to maybe work with you in person? Sure. So I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner. I can offer therapy, psychotherapy, and also medication. Um, if you feel that you need medication, sometimes stress and anxiety and depression get to that point. Um, and we do know that it is actually um, relatively safe during pregnancy to be on medicine if need be. But I also offer just psychotherapy where people are more comfortable with that. And they can Google me. Um, I see I'm in Baltimore, Maryland. So anywhere in that area. And my website is um, nurtured-well.com, nurtured-well.com. Beautiful. Thank you you so much for having us. Thank you for coming on. This has been such a treat for me. Um, I am just so excited for this one to air and for our listeners to get to hear such unique birth stories and also just to, you know, I know we have a lot of women who have had later births or, um, or birth later and later in age or are considering still, and, you know, already in their thirties and maybe haven't even made their, made the decision yet. Uh, so I, or women who are maybe in their twenties or, and thinking about it, but aren't quite ready. This is kind of just like a beautiful way to support women in any phase of knowing that like they're not alone and there's always time and you can be supported and taken care of. And, um, I just love it. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories and giving me an hour of your day. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Well, and, and listeners, you can find um, me at laura.radicalroots on Instagram, jess at jess.holdthespace. You can always email us feedback, questions, comments at um, modernmamaspodcast at gmail.com. Please, please, please subscribe, rate, review, share. It gets wonderful guests like this out to more listeners and we can just kind of continue to build this community and we are so grateful for you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and we will talk to you next week. Thank you guys.
Thanks for listening to our podcast. See you next time.